Hi, Fresh Ed listeners. It's Will here. As we begin the year, I wanted to take a moment to ask for your help. As you know, every episode on Fresh Ed has always been free. We never advertise, and we don't believe in paywalls. That's our ethos, and we want to keep it that way. At first, we were entirely self-funded. Now Fresh Ed is run on a shoestring budget. And that shoestring just got shorter. We need your help to get us through these challenging times. Our episodes are used in courses at universities such as Berkeley, Edinburgh, Harvard, Hawaii, Hong Kong, Humboldt, Sydney, UPenn, and many others. And they don't cost a thing. We're also on the biggest podcast platforms in China and the Middle East and North African region. Many of our episodes have been translated into Mandarin, French, Arabic, and Portuguese. And we support graduate students from around the world to produce episodes based on their research. But it doesn't stop there. We have plans to sponsor more graduate students and start spin-off podcasts in other languages. But to do this, we need your help. We rarely ask for money from you, but we are now asking our listening community to support us. I'll be honest, we're facing an unexpected budget gap of about $25,000. So we need your help to keep Fresh Ed free for everyone. To break it down, if you and another 249 generous listeners each gave $100, we would reach our goal for the year. Whether you're a longtime listener or if you've just found us, if you value Fresh Ed and have the means to do so, please go to freshedpodcast.com slash donate and make a contribution. Again, that's freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thank you. And now on with the show. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. To kick off the year, Professor Marie Law joins me today to talk about education reform in Myanmar. When Aung San Suu Kyi came to power, uh, or the NLD came to power, there is a big mistrust of the NLD, of civil society organisations. So those were dialed down. So it's very, very, it used to be quite easy for civil society organisations to get funding between 2011 and 2015 from abroad to run programmes, education programmes, health programmes, labour programmes, AIDS programmes, you name it. Um, now everything goes into a, you know, goes through the government. So it's become very, very, very hard for civil society to have the same kind of impact that it did. Marie Law has recently published a new open access book entitled Myanmar's Education Reform, A Pathway to Social Justice. I've posted a link to the book on our website. Please go and check it out. Marie is a professor at the UCL Institute of Education and has over 25 years of experience working in the region. Marie Law, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you, Will, for having me. This is brilliant. So Myanmar held its first free and fair or supposedly free and fair election in 2015, about five years ago. And the winner was called the National League for Democracy, the NLD, which was headed or is headed by the Nobel Peace Prize winner Aung San Suu Kyi. She's quite famous worldwide. Many people probably have seen pictures of her. Um, what type of reform did the NLD promise? 
what I always say very clearly to everyone is without the Tinsane government, there would not have been an NLD government. And so that was the government from 2011 to 2015. Exactly. So the elections are always every five years, 2010, November 2010, the uh, were the first elections, um, the first one since 1990, which where the results hadn't been recognized. Uh, and then 2015 were the elections uh, that Aung San Suu Kyi's NLD won. And we've just had another one, which we can talk about at the end, which was in November 2020. But the government always takes over three, four months later, sort of March, April, just before Tianjin, which is the Myanmar New Year. Um, the reforms promised by the NLD, um, actually, the NLD is a traditional party from the left. So if you go and you look back in the 1980s and 1990s, um, their uh, background ethos and philosophy is one of uh, socialism, not not very deep socialism, light touch socialism, but one which is very much about social justice. And if you read the manifesto, the election manifesto, which I did in detail in order to write this book, um, they are really talking about bringing social justice, although they don't use that word in Burmese, to Myanmar through education. And education in many ways is a litmus test to see um, if, you know, it's, it's a way of bringing social justice to the people. And what they were saying is that, you know, they would expand the reform programs, they would make education accessible to all, it would be free and, uh, and basically people would be able to have a better life. From education. Uh, through education. Right. And... Very particularly with education, this means, I mean, in Myanmar, the government education is free and is also the largest provider, the government is the largest provider of um, schools and education, both at school level and higher education level. There are, There is now a private sector, but it's tiny, it's urban, it's for the growing middle classes. Um, the idea was that people would still have to pay. And the way this works is that um, I was part of a UNICEF study in 2013, and we calculated that it's about 70% of all expenses that are borne by the parents. And these are hidden expenses. Because of the centralization, the money from the ministry basically trickles down to the states and regions, um, to the state and region offices, and then to the township education offices, and then to the school. So if you have a broken roof, or your toilets don't work. You basically go up the Grand Trunk Road to the ministry and put in a request. And perhaps six to ten months later, you might get an answer saying, no, we don't have any money for that repair. So instead, you go to the parents and the parents will pay. Teachers have traditionally been on a very low salary. President Hussein, before 2015, raised those salaries quite substantially. But the tradition has been that parents supplement salaries mostly through tuitions. So tuitions are almost mandatory. So in many ways, what the NLD was saying is we need to revamp education, both in terms of the access and in terms of the quality. And there's a big document which is called the NESP, National Education Strategic Plan, which is the education policy of the day. Interestingly, the NESP was the National Education Sector Plan, which was actually put together under the President Insane government. Huh. And so the interesting thing is that there's been continuity. They, there are minor changes which were made to that 270 or 300 page document, or I think it's even larger than that. But they are minor. The idea was, so the idea of social justice uh, through education was something which was propagated through the Thinsane government, but really saw the light of day in the NLD manifesto. When, in terms of social justice, in this particular document, in this manifesto, and perhaps previously in the, the previous government, 
was this in concern with the sort of diversity of Myanmar? I mean, there's so many ethnic groups in Myanmar, and, and this is usually what we think about, or at least in, in the Western press, this is what you, you hear about. Were, were they talking about social justice in terms of, you know, across all ethnic groups, there would be, you know, education would fulfill a particular promise and would, you know, would be used to create that social justice in, in society? So it's really interesting that you asked this, but actually the answer to that is no, because in Myanmar, the idea of social justice is rather one of poverty versus the middle classes, the rich versus the poor. Okay. Um, and although Myanmar is massively diverse, 60 to 65% of the population is Burman, Burma, uh, and 35 to 40% is ethnic minority. There are 135 uh, recognized groups. The 135 is an is a number which comes through the British um, uh, census in under you know in the colonial period, and it's um, it's been hugely problematic because, as we all know, ethnicity and adherence to identity uh, tends to sort of shift over time. But in Myanmar, it's become sort of very um, so th these these identities have been set in stone in many ways. And it also means that if you're not part of those 135, you're outside um, and you're not you don't have the same rights and you're not recognized in the same way. The biggest social justice issues, there's something I argue in the book as well, is between the majority, Burma, and those um, ethnic groups. So that's something which is entirely unrecognized by the NLD. The NLD just says across all groups. Hmm. So they include it in, in their manifesto, they include it in their policies, but there's nothing that actually is working towards that. And I'll give a brief example, um, which is the key problem in all of this. It's teacher education. They, they don't call it teacher training. They call it teacher education. So the teacher education colleges, of which there is now one in every state and region, there were, there, until recently, there were two ethnic states which didn't have teacher education colleges, would recruit people. So you had to have a certain matriculation rate to get in. And if you look at the breakdown of young people getting trained to becoming teachers, there were very, very, very few ethnic, people of ethnic origin. So if you look at the breakdown of the teachers or those who want to become teachers, the trainees in effect, student, student educators as we call them, um, they are mostly Burma and very few are from an ethnic background. And so that means that the teachers going out, fanning out across the entire country, are going into remote and ethnic regions and conflict-affected regions and don't speak the language that the children speak. You know, children drop out of school and guess what happens then? If they drop out of school or they don't get good enough grades at the matriculation rate, they can't become teachers. <laughs> and we go around that circle. And we've been going around this circle now, well, since independence, so 1948. So it's been a long time. Um, so the idea that it's need, this needs to be broken, um, everyone in the ministry knows that there's a problem there because teachers don't speak the ethnic languages and children don't learn Burmese in certain families, you know, until they reach school, so they can't understand the teacher. But there is no formal policy which allows for the recruitment of ethnic teachers who then go back. And in fact, we had, I had, what well, contact with one particular ethnic group, the Pa'u, who actually said, right, we're fed up with this. We're going to create our own teacher education college. They even got recognition from the state education office. This is in Shan State in Damjin. And they got retired and current teacher educators to come and teach at their college. 
and they basically recruited all the ethnic students who had been rejected from the various teacher education colleges. And when these students graduated, they were recognized by the state education office. And we all went hooray. And then they were sent to areas where they didn't speak the language. They were sent to areas where there are other ethnic groups, not the ones where they came <laughs> from. So that, you know. So the cycle continues. <laughs> the cycle continues. Oh, my gosh. Um, so, you know, when it's interesting to think that there was this continuity between the 2010 to 2015 government and then when the NLD came to power. And so, you know, that's interesting to think about. But I would imagine there were some challenges. I mean, were there challenges between the, the what did you call it before, the, the civilianized government and then the, you know, freely elected, if we want to call it that as well, quote unquote, NLD um, elections in 2015. So, you know, what, what, you know, were there any particular issues, say, of, you know, how did, how did the NLD manage the military when they sort of came into power? Uh, that was much easier for President Insane, who was an ex-military himself. So <laughs> what happened on President Insane is a lot of the senior administration were ex-militaries who took off their uniforms and wore the lungi. Um, and obviously, because 25% of all the seats in all parliaments, state, region and national, upper house and lower house is reserved for the military, relations with the President Insane administration was much easier. But it wasn't that easy. Let me just put that in brackets. President Insane went up against some very conservative military forces to push through some of the reforms and in fact his first radio address after the elections after the USDP had won the elections in 2010 was so early 2011 he went on the radio and said mm, there are a lot of sort of entrenched views here which is go it's going to take a long time and it's going to be very difficult to overcome them but he actually went on the radio regularly to updating the Myanmar population saying but I will bring the following reforms and he made a list and every time he'd done something he went back on the radio and said right we've move forward on this. We haven't moved forward on that. We will continue to press forward. And so that was actually very interesting that even as an ex-military officer, he was facing certain problems. Wow. With the NLD, it's, well, Aung San Suu Kyi has worked extremely hard to have good relations with the military. She has bent over backwards. And one of the examples, obviously, the way she's dealt with the Rohingya crisis. So some of your listeners will obviously have followed what's going on there. Um, between well, the problem started earlier and this was by no means the first time that there had been uh, violence against the Muslims in northern Rakhine and a massive exodus into Bangladesh but this was by far the largest and um, 2017 20, I think the main the main exodus period was 2017 mm -hmm. um, and Aung San Suu Kyi said nothing and Aung San Suu Kyi has not said anything about any of the other dozen conflicts that are raging across Myanmar, the peace process is something which we can talk about as well, if you want. Um, it's, there is a peace process, but there are plenty of groups who are not part of this peace or who have rejected this peace process, who are not part of it, and the fighting continues. And Aung San Suu Kyi, in order to keep the peace, has not said anything. Um, but not only to keep the peace with the military, but also to keep the peace with regard to her voters, hmm. because many of her voters just th simply think of Myanmar as being a majority Buddhist Burma country, um, which is accommodated sufficiently for all the minorities. And if she's seen as someone who voices uh, would voice the, you know, the, the position of minorities, that would cost her votes. 
Having watched her for a long time, I would say that she might have the majority Bamar position herself, not necessarily thinking that this is something which is either required or necessary. Hmm. And every time she's spoken about any of these conflicts, if she sort of uh, if she sort of washes it off and sort of try to, tries to point to the sort of macro picture of what the country is going through and what the country is trying to do. So, yes, it is harder for the NLD to operate uh, with the military, but they seem to have found a way of accommodating up to Aung San Suu Kyi going to the ICJ uh, and defending uh, her country in, in against accusations of genocide. I mean, I guess five years on. So, you know, let's say at the at the end of the first term of the NLD in power in 2020, all of these great promises in their um, their manifesto for social justice, as you outlined, and some of the you know difficulties that Aung San Suu Kyi has had to balance, and some of the continuity with the previous government, have have the reforms worked? Have they been able to achieve what was set out in some of the, you know the manifesto? So, yeah, with regard to the reforms, I think we have to look further back. Mm-hmm. So the reforms or the changes in Myanmar really started to happen in the early 2000s. At first, it was extremely slow. Then we had the 2010 stroke 11 to 2015, which set the background for all the reforms. And they op- they were so fast that many of us, many of my Myanmar friends and many of us outsiders were almost a bit scared that things were going too rapidly and that perhaps there would be a backlash. Perhaps the military would get upset and things would backtrack. What changed the most, in your opinion? Like, what scared you the most? Freedom of expression, hmm. <laughs> which has been dialed back again. Um, the The laws on freedom of expression changed quite dramatically under President Insane. Uh, you could criticize the government under President Insane and not get arrested. You can't do that now. Mm. You could. Um, you probably had to be a bit careful with criticizing the military, but you could criticize um, the government, and nothing would happen to you. But now, if you, uh, you know, if you go and criticize the NLD, the likelihood is that you will be taken to task. You will go to jail. Um, at very least to court, but you will go to jail. Um, I think what was scary was all the different things happening at the same time. So there was a peace process, there was economic reforms, there was education reforms, there was health reforms, there was labour reforms. I mean, everything was being blown up. Wow. Uh, the International Labour Organization wrote the you know wrote the new sort of uh, articles regarding labour law. Um, that you know every and suddenly all the international organisations were being invited in. Prior to this, specifically in education. Uh, we'd only had JICA from Japan and UNICEF. So the UN agencies were sort of active in Myanmar, but on a very, very low scale. No one else was active in Myanmar. Suddenly the doors were wide open um, to everyone. So it was a very rapid change um, with, you know, privatisation of schools was allowed and uh, people were allowed to go on the streets. I mean, there, there, things were radically shifting and so we were all a bit worried. Actually, when the NLD came in, certain things were dialed back. One big, sorry, one big thing, which I need to say, is civil society. President Insane came out, and I'm known for someone who really supported that government because I really thought that they made a big change. And as I always say, without them, there would be no NLD government today. Mm-hmm. Um, President Insane came out and said, the government cannot do this alone. Not in such a short time. Civil society organizations, you've been doing this behind our backs for a long time. 
in terms of education, in terms of health, and come in and help us. And the interesting thing is when Aung San Suu Kyi came to power, uh, or the NLD came to power, there is a big mistrust of the NLD of civil society organizations. So those were dialed down. So it's very, very, it used to be quite easy for civil society organizations to get funding between 2011 and 2015 from abroad Mm -hmm. to run programs, education programs, health programs, labor programs, AIDS programs, you name it. Um, Now everything goes into a, you know, goes through the government. So it's become very, very, very hard for civil society to have the same kind of impact that it did. Why is the NLD skeptical of civil society so much? because they're control freaks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The NLD is very much about centralized control, which also means that the constitution allows for a certain amount of decentralization. And that's something President Insane did very little about. I mean, he was doing everything else, but that's one thing he really didn't touch on, that land reform he didn't touch properly, and he didn't do very much on decentralization. Mm -hmm. But the idea was this would come next, right? You can't do, you know, as I said, there was everything was happening at the same time. Certain things had to be in second place. But with the NLD, they are very uncomfortable about giving people lower rung at the lower rung any kind of power. Mm. And this fit, feeds into the Myanmar culture of hierarchies. So um, it's easier if the responsibility is at the top for everyone, because that means that you are not, you know, you're not responsible for anything. So that's a big problem that we have in the changes in education as well. So you've got these wonderful, glossy policy papers, you know, like the NESP. Um, But ultimately speaking, it's the minister and the director generals who have to do everything. And if they don't do it, no one else will do it because no one else wants to get, be made responsible for something failing. (laughs) Yeah, they could lose their job. Yeah, right. Uh, and so there's a this big fear. Um, the further down you go, um, if the idea is just to keep your head down and to do only what you're told and not anything more, and that's been part of the problems that have been faced not only by the NLD but by any government that would come in because that's just part of the entrenched culture which came in through military dictatorship um you know we had in 1962 the burmese way to socialism everything was so Mm -hmm. controlled in order to survive people had to behave like this so that legacy stays you know lives on in a way absolutely so it's interesting to think that for you know about five years in a sense the floodgates were opened to donors and civil society organizations i would imagine some of them continued to exist into the NLD period? And I mean, and do they still exist? I mean, are there still development partners working in Myanmar in education? Yeah, so it's not that the the NLD did not get rid of any of the development partners. In fact, the money is more than welcome, Mm. but it's much more streamlined and it's much more controlled. Uh, Civil society organizations exist. They just can't get money from abroad. Mm. So they get donations from locally. So they still operate, but obviously not at the grand scale that some of them, some of them operated at a really grand scale previously. And that's been dialed down. It's very much about controlling who's doing what. But the problem is, so with donor money, um, it, it comes it's supposed to achieve something donors are actually you know they also you know they want to tick the boxes on you know they've given so many millions so they want to see that against the nesp in education they want to see what the money has achieved and the problem is you're dealing with a totally overworked ministry which through this hierarchical structure where um, no one wants to take any kind of responsibility and it's always dialed back up to the director generals or up right directly to the minister that makes 
um, executing on any of these programs very difficult. So a lot is being done. But actually, when you go and look on the ground, there's a, what I say in the book is there's a lot of activity, but very little change. Hmm. So a lot of stuff is people are moving. The curriculum has been re, rewritten. Um, you know, there's training happening at all different levels. Teachers are getting trained. Teacher educators are getting trained. Everyone is getting training. But when you go into the classroom, it's the same as it always was. Um, in one school that I visited, they were saying, oh, we're re- teaching the new curriculum and the old curriculum and some of it's in rote learning some of it's supposed to be in child-centric approach but really you know teachers are getting slightly you know confused with what they're supposed to do with which curriculum so they just go in and they just get everyone to rote learn everything that's just that's just the safest way of doing it so why why is that happening though if all of these new curriculums for instance are being rewritten so the primary curriculum was rewritten with the help of JICA. And in fact, they even got a very good teacher book so that the teachers basically get advice on how to deliver this new curriculum. But because it's, you know, you're rewriting a whole curriculum and you're expanding from an 11-year curriculum to a 12-year curriculum plus a KG year, and you're dealing with teachers who were trained in the old method. So um, you're throwing this new curriculum at them with some training, some cascade training, um, expecting them to change the way that they have always taught. And in the end, some some teachers will try, find that simply if you're dealing with 50 to 100 students in a classroom, it becomes unmanageable. So they'll revert back to their old the old ways. Mm. Um, a lot of the problem with the reforms as they've been brought in um, is the fact of the lack of context. So if you go into a, a, a monastic school, you will rarely have, especially big monastic schools in urban areas, rarely have less than 80 children in the classroom. In rural areas, obviously, the classroom classes are much smaller, but then you'll have fewer teachers as well. In a, in a government school, you'll rarely have anything less than 50 or 60 in a classroom. I mean, this is, this is normal in Myanmar. And so trying to, even Jaika has done a really good job. I mean, I looked at the new books and I looked at the teacher stuff and it's, they've done a very, and they understand Myanmar very well because they've been there for a long time. But even then, um, the, you know, the, the new curriculum, which Jaika has written, you supposedly, you'd think that that would be coordinated with the training of the, or the educating of the new teachers, right? So that, that, but that's being done by UNESCO. Um, and I think ADB also has something to do with it. And so, the JICA stuff is being passed to the schools, but not passed to the teacher educators. Hmm. So the new teachers are not being trained in the whole new curriculum, just in parts of it. So is it a lack of coordination among... Oh, it's a total lack of coordination yeah. amongst, amongst, amongst the aid agencies, which are called development partners in Myanmar, um, but also between the various aid agencies and the ministry and the different parts of the ministry, because the ministry in itself, one of my Myanmar friends the other day on another podcast was laughing, says people don't speak to each other between departments in a ministry. How do you expect (laughs) them to talk across ministries? Again, it's that sort of putting your head above the parapet, the fear of what could happen. And presumably this has been going on for quite some time. This is not new to the NLD era. No, this has been going on, but it comes out because we have this big reform program. So it's sort of, um, you know, the the reforms have brought to the surface those problems. But then this is really important. It's not the first time that we faced some of these problems because, I mean, JICA and UNICEF, specifically in education, health has also had its own reforms. The WHO has been in Myanmar for decades. Just in education, JICA and UNICEF have been running programs to try and bring schools to run 
child-centric ways of teaching and learning for 25, 30 years now, 25 years at least. Um, and there are big reports, hundreds of pages, which are publicly available where you can read as to why these programs didn't work. And now that we're running the new reform program through the NESP uh, with, you know, again, a whole load of donor money coming in, we find they're the same conclusions when you have the evaluations, when you have the reports saying, you know, why did this not work? Or is there a gap between the policy and the practice? Mm. And the same points that are written, you know, that we find today and that we also found in the NESP midterm review, which was just run in 2019, second half of 2019, are exactly the same points as what we what UNICEF said 15 years ago and what JICA said 20 years ago. So no one's done any kind of sort of thinking about lessons learned. Hmm. Like that seems to be a problem of the donors not looking back on their own history. Problem of the donors, but also the ministry not being able to communicate. The uh, ministry is aware of all these programs because UNICEF programs mm. and JICA programs were run through the ministry. So they're also aware. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a combination. The ministry is overburdened. I mean, the, mm. you know, they're, they're understaffed. They've got too many. They've got too few people to run too many programs. Everyone wants a piece of them. All the donors come in with different programs trying to cover the same stuff. At one point, we were UCL was running a, a program for helping universities in higher education while the Japanese were doing something similar. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the minister didn't know, was he supposed to come and see us at UCL or was he supposed to go and speak to the JICA people and the Japanese who were there? I mean, you know, so he had to be in two places at the same time. This is this is common in Myanmar because you don't want to upset anyone. You don't <laughs> say anything. You just... I, how much does, I mean, looking back even further to more of the colonial period, how much of sort of, you know, post-colonialism or sort of neo-colonialism could we see in some of these sort of educational processes that you're explaining? I think a lot of the donors bring in the sort of notion of we will bring good practice to you. I mean, I've written saying about child-centric approaches being sort of brought into Myanmar and then obviously not being adopted because it doesn't work with the context. Um, some things do work. And within child I mean, every time I ran a workshop on something like this, people say, if we could find a Myanmar way of doing it, which fits with our culture, I, if we could be authors of our own destiny, then things would work. And I think that's really what the ministry would need to do. But I mean, for that to work, you need to work with civil society organizations and you need to work with, um, you know, broader society. You need to be given the time and the space to develop what works. And there are plenty of organizations locally which do this, but it's at a small level mm. rather than at this macro sort of kind of ministerial level. So, yes, you have a lot of this sort of um, development partner approach DFID or now FCDO is very much part of this bringing in our way of doing things uh, which is really quite a shock to Myanmar in many ways because Myanmar you know what had British was a British colony um, from the three Anglo-Burmese wars and then in the second world war the Japanese chased the British back to India and then the British chased the back and the Japanese back out mm. and then in 1948 um, Burma was independent and in from 1962, with the first big military coup under Nguyen, the country just went, you know, it, it hermetically sealed itself off. So actually, there's been no sort of foreign push for any of the sort of philosophies from the outside. Hmm. Literally between 1962 and the late 80s, where Myanmar opened up to sort of the East, China in particular, but ASEAN as well, but not the West, until 2010, there was no contact 
So it's actually quite a shock for, you know, many of the sort of Myanmar uh people to sort of receive these sort of wisdoms western western <laughs> western wisdoms, wisdoms coming in um, so so in 2020 at the end of 2020 myanmar held another election and so nld wins again so is the next five years for the of nld rule in terms of education is it is it similarly guided by that manifesto that was written in 2015 no, I think really now what is clear is I actually did not see an NLD education manifesto mm. uh, for 2020. That might just be me not having looked hard enough. But I think really that's partly because there's no need to do that anymore. The idea really is we have the NESP um, and we had a midterm review. And actually the big crisis is to get the second version, so NESP 2. Um, NESP was supposed to... Uh, to to run for a certain number of years. I can't at this moment off the top of my head, can't remember for how long, but they'd have just run its halfway point at that point. And so the idea was NESP2 was to see what had worked, what hadn't worked and refine it. And the problem is that COVID has happened. Mm. So the ministry is trying to put together a second version of NESP based in part on this midterm review, which sort of showed up where some of these bottlenecks were and some of these problems. But it is obviously much, much harder to do so when you're not sure when your schools are going to be reopening and when most of the donors are out of the country and um, everything's done on Zoom. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's, it is highly problematic. So I, I'm, I'm not quite sure where we are going with the education reform programme at the moment, I think once the pandemic is over, people will revert back to the NESP and see what else needs to be done. I'm told by colleagues that the ministry is still working, but how are they bringing those changes down into the schools and into the universities and into the education colleges? I can't imagine how that's working, given the travel restrictions in the country and given you know the COVID restrictions. So, yes, I think we have to wait post-pandemic to see how things are going to evolve. Well, Marie Law, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure to talk today. And congratulations again on your book. Thank you. Thank you so much, Will. On February 1st, the Myanmar military took power of the country and detained government officials, including Aung San Suu Kyi. The coup occurred just hours before parliament was due to sit for the first time after the November elections. Since I interviewed Marie on January 25th, I called her on February 1st to get her reactions to these events. Hi, Marie. Thanks so much for coming back on on a pretty wild day. Yeah, total shock this morning. Five days, or six days ago we spoke, and yes. the world has entirely changed. It's all very much different today. So today is February 1st, and when we're talking, what happened? Well, I'm not quite sure what happened. Um, from my Myanmar contacts, I had a message this morning on WhatsApp saying military coup. I went online and saw that chief of staff had basically taken over the country. And uh, there are demonstrations, but pro-military demonstrations in Yangon, I'm told. The uh, MPs have been arrested. Aung San Suu Kyi and the president have been arrested. Aung San Suu Kyi and the president have called for civil disobedience, uh, saying that if you know, the military has taken, um, you know, has gone outside of the constitution. So therefore the public is not bound by it and they should go and protest that basically the 2020 elections are being stolen. And uh, the people I've spoken to are going to hunker down at home and we are all sitting there like rabbits in the headlight, not quite sure what's going to happen next. 
So they didn't need to do this. There was no need. Uh, the 2008 constitution um, actually has allowed the military, the, the military wrote it, that it has allowed the military to keep control of three ministries, the border affairs ministry, home ministry, and um, the minister, whichever ministry deals with military affairs. And so they don't have an interest in running reforms in education and health, agriculture, land reform, and all the rest of it. So they, it was almost a division of labor where they kept control of things they wanted to do, including fighting the ethnic armed groups and dealing with security issues. And the civilian government was sort of dealing with the other side of things and the civilian government had cooperated. Of course, there were always issues and problems, but they had cooperated, including up to Aung San Suu Kyi going to the International Court of Justice at The Hague, defending the actions of the military. So in that sense, it's it, the, the reason given, which was that there was fraud in the elections and that the Union Election Commission didn't look into it sufficiently, that the parliament was not looking into it, and that the president refused to uh, convene the National Defense and Security Council twice. Those were the reasons given for the coup today. Um, just don't seem hmm. sufficient for throwing away 15, what is 15 years of progress? It, it's taken 15 years to get here. The roadmap to democracy, the quote unquote roadmap to democracy that I spoke about was sort of the idea sort of came up in 2003, 2004 and really hmm. was sort of launched with the writing of the constitution at that particular point in time. So effectively, we're looking at 15 years down the drain. So, so uh, is it fair to say that you were surprised? Yes, I was surprised. Um, and most of the people I spoke to this morning in Myanmar were surprised because this was so drastic. Um, mm. Last few days, I've been rumors swirling about, but just to be very clear, these rumors come and go. There have been times when the tanks have been taken out. I remember a time I was in Myanmar when the tanks went up to the USDP headquarters and um, they got rid of the uh, Shweman uh, at that particular point in time. Um, one of the very power, actually speaker of the house, they demoted mm -hmm. him from, from his position within the military party. And we all thought, oh my God, this is going to go wrong. There's going to be a military coup. And there was no military coup. They just you know, threw him out of the party and that was the end of it. So it's not the first time that you see mobilization, rumors of a coup, and then everything goes away. But this is very clear. The military has come on, you know, there's a, I saw, I've seen the letter that's gone out to everyone, um, organizations and private people and international organizations from the office of the chief of staff, Minang Line, saying, you yep, for one year, we're going to run this country. And this, these are the things we're going to do. We're going to look at the election records um, and we are going to deal with COVID. And then we're going to call elections again, and then we'll start all over. That's that's what they promise. So would it would it be fair to say, or maybe potentially project that the sort of education reforms that we were talking about in our interview might just be on pause for a year, or do you think they'd actually be unwound and sort of a lot of the progress might be lost? I don't think they'll be unwound, but uh, progress will be lost because when you stop something sort of midway. Um, uh, you know, you can't, I think the biggest issue is that the aid money is just going to be stopped. Mm. So um, a lot of this is financed, co-financed by aid money. And uh, as long as there's a, after a military coup, the various governments um, will not, you know, I'm sure money, you know, commercial money from China and so on, China doesn't have a problem with this, is going to continue. But Western aid money, everything from FCDO, uh, USAID, AUSAID, I suspect even the World Bank um, might rethink the loans and the uh, grants that it's giving to Myanmar. Everything might just get paused for a year. And if there's no money, I suspect that 
it, things will stop or at least you know stop for until the problem is well if people go on the streets then this could be very much longer than a year right. stay home and heed the advice which is they're defying according to the friends i spoke to they are defying the military on social media they were told not to use social media to you know to sort of complain about the coup and and and, and criticize um, people are defying that as of now, as of the moment that you and I are speaking, no, there have been demonstrations, but they've only been pro-military demonstrations, so those seem to be tolerated, but not against the coup, but that could change very rapidly. I mean, And it is, it's only Monday at about 4 p.m. GMT, so a lot could change by the time this goes out. By the out. time this goes out, there might be demonstrations, there might be a standoff with the military, and then obviously things could take a lot, lot longer than one year. But perhaps people will stay, given COVID, um, perhaps if, the, if there's a clear roadmap, perhaps people will give the military the benefit of the doubt. I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. We'll have to wait. Well, you'll have to come back on and give us an update later in the year once a few things are a bit more clear. Thank you so much, Marie, for coming back on. And I, it's just unbelievable what is happening in Myanmar right now. Yeah, well, to, for many, the 2020 elections have been stolen. And that's awful. Marie Law is a professor of education and South Asian studies at the UCL Institute of Education. Her new book is entitled Myanmar's Education Reforms, which was published by UCL Press. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not FreshEd, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Sherry Yang, Lushik Waba, Fatih Akdas, Ingjung Cho, Femi Ngungle, Dion Jiang, Zhou Fei, Annabella Boteng, Anya Lin, and Phyllis Manesh. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. FreshEd is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you please consider donating to FreshEd by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.